2: for David Attenborough with Ben Elwood.
0: Hello everybody, welcome to Thank God for David Attenborough. My name is Ben Elwood and my guest today is Associate Professor Matthew Crowther from Sydney University's School of Life and Environmental Sciences. Matthew is a bona fide expert in mammals. He works extensively with koalas, advises on mouse plagues and has even discovered two species of Australian marsupial. I had such a great time sitting with Matthew talking all things monotreme, marsupial, kangaroo and platypus as we watched episode 9 of Sir David Attenborough's Life on Earth, The Rise of the Mammals.
3: The ancient mammals were small, nocturnal insect hunters that relied chiefly on their sense of smell to find their food. Warmth was the key to their survival and ultimate success. Since they alone could hunt during the cool of the night, they didn't have to face competition with the reptiles. And so those primitive mammals were able to live right through the age of the dinosaurs and be ready poised to inherit the world when the reptiles finally declined.
0: Is it true that you've discovered two species of marsubial?
2: Yes. What, what, what's the... Antichinous... That was sort of did my PhD on. They're little insects eating marsupials fuels. They're known for their really unusual life history in that they breed once a year and then all the males drop dead. It's because they have these massive mating events that go up to 18 hours at a time and all that. And that's partly so another male can't get in there. Yeah. In captivity, they film like a male's coming in, he's mating and fighting the other male. There's all this going on. <laughs> and so they have this extreme, but it's so extreme that they've got so sexually dimorphic in that their testosterone's to the roof. They've got testes the size of their heads so and massive size. And so what happens is they get renal damage and the immune system basically collapses and they all die. So they copulate themselves to death? Well, not really because if they don't copulate, they still die. Right. because it's the cortisol testosterone. You see them; they're like losing fur, they're like they're looking really. <laughs> and that's like just one year of age. Gee, I thought I'd seen some human males that were desperate to
0: get
1: laid. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Hello, I'm Matthew Crowther. I'm an associate professor in the School of Life and Environmental Sciences at University of Sydney. I mainly work in the ecology and evolution of mammals, and a particular focus on marsupials these days.
0: So, in in a nutshell, what do you? Like, what do you do?
2: Work focus has been a lot on koalas in the last few years, partly interesting, partly because it's an area of funding and an area that people are interested in. But I've worked on other things. I've worked on a lot of small mammal research. I did some house mouse plague stuff, so some of that's come back. I was working years ago on my first about how mouse plagues are formed. And then now I've been getting a few media calls up. So
0: oh, i mouse plagues formed. Well,
2: because, you know, you get lots of... The problem is out, out in the West is that they've had drought for so long. Yeah. Then they've had lots of rainfall, lots of cops. They're coughing throughout the year. The problem is is people don't learn mistakes from the past. because <laughs> It's you the co- epitaph of humanity. <laughs> I know, because mice are always there but in really low numbers. And, but what they do is when there's a lot of food... They're surviving longer, and they can reproduce at five to six weeks of age, and every three weeks, they can have a litter of up to 10 or oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, And The problem was, we've changed the so much that they're sort of monocultures. So, you know, you don't have all the, the birds and the snakes and everything, and what we haven't learned from the mistakes is monitor. Make sure you attack the mouse plague when it's really low in numbers, because... Like the mice are already getting so overloaded. They've eaten all the food. They're starting to eat each other. And they've eaten all your wires They've fouled all your water supply. They've fouled yes. it's, it's it's horrible. Like I was out there doing my koala stuff. And you can go to some parts and you see this like, you see the vegetation. like it's got this sway to it. And you're oh. <laughs> Oh, you got a And that smell, there's that mouse smell, that mouse urine and feces smell that like you just can't, you know, that rodent smell. It's just. Oh. So, are you saying that if the natural numbers of predators
0: were still around, that, that nature would kind of check that Well, they clothes? can. They can.
2: Partly that. It's partly because you've created a habitat that's high food abundance. Yeah. I. Grain. We create so much grain that they yeah. love. Yeah. And it's good quality grain when the rain It's an ecosystem. Dysfunction almost, like when we talk about someone's got metabolic dysfunction in their cells because, you know, diabetes, things like that. S- think of an ecosystem like that, like, because we've just made it all one crop. We've got an introduce species like a mouse, which just responds really well to that. Yeah. And you don't have to check some balances. You see images of cats just sitting there and we've got mice running over them. No. They're just... just Like it's just you got to a stage uh, like it just doesn't matter. And the poison that they're using, actually, the one they want to use, is pretty bad because it bioaccumulates. Like, like so, the owls will eat it and die. So a lot of birds oh, will eat it. So it costs a lot of money and it costs a, it's like a lose-lose situation. You, you need to hit these things early on.
0: What's what's an ethical way to deal with a massive swarm? of? I mean, it sounds like poisoning them is really well, that, bad.
2: Well, that's the only really way. Like, you can use poisons that don't bioaccumulate. Mm. But the ethical way is learn from history and do the right thing in the mm, beginning. Yeah. Because no one wins. They spend lots of money on the poison. It costs a lot of money to do that. If you're in plague, you've already lost a lot of crops. You've lost, you've got major damage. Plus, they've probably chewed through your wires. Plus, they've got an new water tank. Ugh. Even like there's in, like, out Walgett, they getting into the, the hospital and biting people on the feet and things Ugh. like that.
0: This is, this is, this is... A, <laughs> it's apocalyptic. It is apocalyptic. It's the nastiest <laughs> thing.
2: It's the nastiest thing you can think of. Like, you should be, think about the ecosystem, keep as much in the natural ecosystem... And actually, a lot of farmers are realising that, because at the same time, there was a grasshopper plague out there, and it was because you want bushland, so you want insects there, you want your pollinators there, you want the predators on the other in all of these yeah. things out out there, not just... I know it's a simple thing, oh, more land, more crop, but it doesn't seem to work like that. You need to have all these things to keep them down low at those stages, You you want to try and stop a plague from forming. You don't want to just try and yeah, manage it when it's man- happening. Yeah, cuz it's just yeah, you, when you got to that plague, you've already lost.
3: A great proportion of the mammals with the help of their warm bodies, venture out only under the cover of darkness to nibble buds, bark and green shoots. On the woodland floor, a little hamster busily gathers food. But eating for hours on end, out in the open, can be dangerous. So the hamster stuffs all it can find into its cheek pouches as quickly as possible and then scampers back to the safety of its burrow.
0: Like rodents, like small mammals. Are they just are just are they in a constant fluctuating state between just panic
2: and food, food,
0: food, food, food? Well food,
2: that's that's a lot. <laughs> actually I had this conversation the other day with someone about this. <laughs> about how if you're a small mammal, you've got it pretty bad. Like yeah. every time you go out, oh there's a cat, there's an owl, there's you know some of the snakes in Australia are so venomous, it's because they were designed to eat rats. So they are really, really in a constant state of fear and, like, oh. everything smelly out there, like there's cat smell. That's some of the research you're doing about can cat fur and the, and the smells from cat fur be used as a repellent for, for rodents. It
0: sounds like it just, I was talking to Tanya Laddie about bugs oh, yeah. and we had a great conversation about, you know, whether or not Bugs feel pain or emotion and no one at this stage can really know, but the general consensus is no, like bugs don't feel pain or if they do, it's not on a level that we could understand, you know, you've got spiders hobbling around on after their legs have been taken off and they don't seem to be in pain, they're not protecting the wound or anything. But for a mammal, like, clearly they feel pain on an extreme level and fear on an extreme level. Oh,
2: yeah, they do. They it's do. It's
0: just, I mean, what an existence. And we can measure it.
2: The cortisol levels, the you know, the, the stress hormone, the fear you can measure, and you can pick it up even in the feces. How, that, how in the feces? What does that mean? It's like the cortisol, it's exclusive. Oh, right. You think, <laughs> oh, I've just got to go stuff my face and then not get eaten. <laughs> and I might get eaten every time I go stuff my face. But... That said, even though those causal levels are high, doesn't mean that they're having a bad life. They obviously are coping with it in some way. And maybe this is what's going on in society now because mm. we have young people, they're ultra-stressed, and it's not because things are coming to eat them. It's because someone says, I don't like how you look on their Instagram. So yes. It's about social stress rather than I'm going to eat you type Yeah, stress. Our ancestors... <laughs> we're being eaten by leopards. Mm. Navy and chives are coming and killing us and taking what yeah. they want from us. Here in Sydney, I don't know we've got coronavirus and everything, but we live a really easy life. Mm. Like yeah. I'm not going to walk out here and suddenly someone's going to chop my head off with a machete. Mm. Touch wood. But you know, <laughs> like <things> <laughs> on a long enough timeline. Anything could happen. Yeah, right? <laughs> I know. I know. But that's a, <laughs> but that's that's what's happening. So I in some ways, we're suffering stress. Societal stress, but we don't actually have that stressful life.
0: I've heard that phrase, the amygdala response, where it's like your brain, even though we're not being hunted yeah. by a leopard on the plains, yeah. neurologically, you know, when someone's judging your appearance on Instagram, your brain doesn't really know the difference. And so your brain kicks you into yeah. the amygdala response and you feel all that cortisol and the stress and the yeah. fear and the panic. Yeah. And, you know, which is why we've got all these. Bizarre manifestations of anxiety that are, you know, and, 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 a, and a society that's pretty messed up psychologically.
2: It is. It is it, it's really. As I say, we're talking about young people. And I don't know coronavirus has certainly not helped, but mm. they were going along that path with the social media before mm. we even mm-hmm. got here. And it does show you, know, it's these things that have evolutionary advantages have become a maladaptant because of the way we live in our society. Yes, like, yes, yes, yes. But DC should not. Cause people anxiety, like people should go. I don't care what you think of my phone. Mm. like whatever, like. Mm, mm, mm. But you know, that's, that's try telling that to a fourteen-year-old.
0: I tried telling it to an adult. Yeah, you know. yeah, twenty-five-year-old. I mean, yeah, yeah. Like, we don't have the stresses of surviving in the main. Of course, there's people in this world that are really. Struggling oh yeah, there's to some
2: cultures, that certain yeah, and start certain parts of the world, like imagine being in Afghanistan. Yeah, no, absolutely. Imagine, imagine being in well. Oh, I've worked in Papua New Guinea and then, sometimes it's just, there's tribal warfare. And, mm-hmm. you know,
0: there's, I, I think we have that, we still have those triggers in our brains mm-hmm. in living in a very, you know, uh, de- decadent, easy to live in Western society and yet uh, these so these things that aren't big deals or aren't life and death situations still trigger off those same y- yes. chemical responses. I, I think before what you were saying about, the, you know, is, is life hell for small mammals, I wonder if without that, as far as we know, sophisticated consciousness to be able to hold on to the memory of a trauma and then continually re-traumat- re-traumatize yourself by reliving the event if it's just easier to let go of the thing once, you know, you've been chased by an owl and you escape and then you shutter it out and you just kind of get on with things rather yeah. than walking around in the constant state of perpetual terror.
2: Yeah, well, that's probably... That Probably is like they will learn from each of those experiences, they certainly learn. Mm. Like, they go, Oh, I won't do that again. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, um, yeah, if you get a near miss because you think, Well, it's not gonna be a near miss next time, yeah. But yeah, I would, I would say that's probably what they're doing. It's just there was another expression by physiologists it says, Life is stress, stress is life, <laughs> oh, but that's that's from a, an animal physiology point of view, yeah. Like, I know, it, because we keep on relating to, oh, I've got too many much work to do or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But animals have to go find food and eat it and not get eaten. Mm. And that's a pretty stressful way to live, mm-hmm. y- you would think. Sometimes I am grateful to be a human. <laughs> yeah. Not
0: often, but... <laughs> I
2: know, yeah, I know. I know, it just seems a bit, yeah, so we can get stressed about Instagram posts, not <laughs> not something trying to eat me all the time. <laughs> yeah, I know what I'd rather have. <laughs>
3: most reptiles teeth were simple spikes which did little more than grip a victim but generating heat within the body requires a great deal of energy and so a warm-blooded animal must eat much more food than a normal reptile and digest it fairly rapidly most reptiles shed their teeth sporadically throughout their lives but the teeth of these creatures not only became specialized but permanent And since these creatures generated their heat internally, they would also have needed a coat of hair in order to conserve it. The mammals had arrived. Mammals, it's
0: the only group of animals where the the shape is so divergent. You know, the difference between a pangolin and a bat versus a whale versus a lion, it's just so extreme. What, Despite all the extreme differences in shape... And function, like what's the basic theme or pattern of a mammal?
2: Well, a mammal, it's in the word, it's mammal, as in mammary glands, is that they like, they all feed their young milk. Okay. The reason why they became successful was the mammal plan. There's a few things that they sort of did better than, sort of things that we call reptiles. Reptiles is a very bad term, really, because there's a whole lot of things that we just call reptiles because it's convenient. But- yeah, yeah, yeah. They're scaly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they're sort of scaly, but um, yeah. there was a whole lot of um structures to them. One thing is teeth. If you look at the teeth of lizards or crocodiles or that, they all look the same. Mm. And like mammals, you've got incisors and canines and premolars and molars. So that's why you can have like these specialised herbivores. You can eat tough nuts and all these things that mammals eat. Like a lot of lizards, you eat them. They like eating insects and things like that. They're eating things that are actually quite easy to eat. Just chomp, 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 chomp swallow. That's why they, when crocodiles grab you, they put you under a log because they can't chew you. Yeah, they don't have those chewing teeth. So Is that what, that's why they do the death roll, right? They, to break all the bones well, and make it a bit easier. partly to, to, to kill you, but partly yeah. to, <laughs> to think. But they also put you under a log. It's really quite grotesque, isn't it? Like what, wait, to, so, no, so you rot out? So you rot out. Because it's easy to take. Uh, so it's of course. E- so you're rotting out. Because oh, it's like
0: of, a perfectly braised I'd, piece of meat.
2: Yeah, but like a lion just goes and eats you there on the spot. Because, yeah. you know, it, it, they've got the canines for the killing, and then, then they've got the... The premolars and molars mm. for the processing, and things like, fish as who you you talking talking? A koala, or a cow, or a kangaroo, or things like that. They can eat those really, really tough foods. I eat like eating eucalyptus leaves or eating grass, mm. which are really hard things to eat. You look at mammalian teeth, whether it's a bat's tooth or a dog's tooth or a human's tooth, or things like the whales have varying diversity dentition. Yeah, they're not all the same. Just those jagged things. Mm. One of the the, sort of the interesting structures that changed, like mammals have a single lower dentary bone. Mm -hmm. But a lot of reptiles have multiple bones and they have this sort of hinge system. These bones actually moved up into the ear over time. So the malleus, the incus, and our ear bone. So in, in, in layman's
0: terms, the hammer, the anvil, and the stapes? Yeah. Yeah.
2: And so they're the ones that used to be part of the jaw, but now they're part of the ear, which has helped some of hearing efficiency. We also developed a secondary palate, where that meant that we could basically breathe and eat at the same time. So there's a whole lot of changes, including the efficiency of teeth, the efficiency of the jaw, and the efficiency of hearing, and the efficiency of breathing, as well as what fur came along, which is sort of what defines what... Was driving mammals. It was the need to be endothermic, but what came with it? I.e., once you're endothermic, you can be active so many more times. And and, sorry, endothermic means that you generate your own heat. Oh, you generate your own heat because they warm. We used to call it warm blooded, but they don't like to call it that because a a lizard that's warmed itself up quite a bit could be much warmer temperature than a mammal.
0: Teeth and jaws and hearing. Is it kind of those? evolutionary developments that then allow them to spread into more diverse habitats, which then allows this crazy diversity in form.
2: Yeah. I would say that, yeah, because yeah. it allowed them to go into the sea, to, into the air. But allowed them to go up into the real cold areas and mm. really, you know, they live in really hot areas. Yeah. And that probably is for those adaptations that they can get their own sources of energy. Mm. And that has made them quite successful. But birds, birds—you could argue birds are pretty much the same in that case. Yeah, there.
0: yeah. And 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 similar diversity of form, although there seems to be a template that's kind of. Oh yeah, the birds are a riff on the same template.
2: Well, birds are basically dinosaurs modified for flight. That's yeah. basically what they are. And mammals are just—you know—they just say, "Okay, our basic plan is a little rat-like thing." Go <laughs> for it. Go for it. <laughs> go diversify from that.
3: When specimens of this creature first reached Europe, from Australia, at the very end of the 18th century, people refused to believe their eyes. They said it was a hoax. Bits and pieces of different creatures rather crudely sewn together. But it's no hoax. It's a platypus. When it comes to breed, it does something that separates it from all other mammals except the echidna. It lays eggs. It's this that links the platypus with the reptiles, this that entitles it to be regarded as the most primitive living mammal.
0: incorrect to think of monotremes as a more primitive form of mammal, or is it just a different branch of the family of mammalia?
2: Well, it's primitive, it's a loaded term, Mm -hmm. isn't it? Yeah. Because they're still here, and I'll tell you, echidnas have got the largest range of all Australian mammals, they're found in the lowlands of New Guinea. They're found in Tasmania. They're found in the deserts, hmm. in the snow and things. You know, sometimes when you've got something right, well, they change it. Like, course, yeah. And they're, they're very, very successful. Like, there's no species as widespread throughout the Australian continent as the Echidna, wow. which is a monitoring. So people might use primitive features, i.e. their pelvic girdle. Which is bone structures that they have, mm. which was in the ancestors of mammals, which were lived in the Jurassic period. Sure. So they got some of those features and they retained them. But to say that's necessarily primitive, sometimes when you've got something that works, use it. The males have venomous spurs yep. and the females don't. It's really interesting. It's just just the males that have it. Yeah. So, Because I think, why would they, why just the males? Because obviously females have to defend themselves too. So, yeah, it's a sort of a mystery. Right? So, so we still don't know why. We still don't really know why it's just the males. Maybe it's a leftover. Maybe it's used more in combat between males. Um, but they're one of the few mammals that actually have venom. And they, they've they got a lot of things, like platypus have electroreception, so they can basically find the yabbies in it that they eat. They can close their eyes and just use electroreception to find them. They've got a lot of things that work really well for them. So, what is
0: the difference between a mammal, monotreme, and marsupial? Are they three separate? Yes, three
2: separate groups. Yes, yeah. and I can. First thing is in the name monotreme, which is mono one hole. So they have a clack. It's a bit like birds right. and reptiles have. And so monotremes are much different from the others in that they're the only ones that lay eggs. But they also have a whole lot of other reptilian sort of features, like their bone structure and their rib structure is much more reptilian. But they do have the mammal feature of lactation, but they have no nipples. So they basically sweat, sweat the milk. (laughs) So, um, yeah, it's quite an interesting thing. And they, they think that's what milk came from. It wasn't originally a food stuff; It was originally lysozyme. So what is lysozyme? It's a chemical which stops the young be attacked by fungus and so microorganisms that say um antibiotic, basically. Right. Okay. Lysosomes just need a, a small genetic change to become this thing called lacto which is what's in milk. And they find that the monotremes have more antimicrobial properties in their milk than other mammals. So they've almost like We've got a stage of evolution that still retains a lot of these features that we can actually use to help study how mammals themselves basically evolved. So a marsupial is defined by having a pouch. That's the main... Well, the word marsupial means, a marsupial means the pouch, but echidnas also have pouches and they're monotremes. So, and some of the marsupial pouches are fairly pouches, but the antichinists, the little insect eating marsupials, they've got flaps of skin that's a. a right. Like we think of the kangaroo, which has got a big, strong, sort of big pouch. But, um, yeah, it's the marsupium is what they define. But, again, as I say, the kidneys have pouches. so It's just convenient. It's it, it just convenient for us. But, you know, pouches were around in other organisms. And probably if you look back in history, there's a whole lot of different things that may have had pouches. Yeah, right. Well. Wow.
0: Biology seems to be like grammar, that there's these hard and fast rules that don't always oh, seem yeah. to be. Well,
2: it's, it's because, you know, who's <laughs> making the rules here? Like, yeah, exactly, uh, yeah. Like, we, we love categorizing things and making them really easy yeah. for us to say, Yep, yeah, those things have those features, those features, those features, yeah. but how about those features? Oh, okay. And even when we define, like, a species, it becomes difficult they were going, oh, yeah, there's things that don't interbreed. Oh, but those ones interbreed sometimes. Ligers well, and so some zonkeys and all that kind well, of stuff. And then people would say, oh, but they're infertile. But then we find out there's a lot of species that breed that are fertile. So we create these nice classifications, yep. but nature doesn't care. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, you know. yeah.
1: Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it.
3: Australia, this huge island continent, has remained cut off from the rest of the world and here the marsupials have become and remained the dominant mammals. This is the koala. It lives in trees and eats nothing but the leaves of just a few particular kinds. Sloths in South America do much the same and are equally fussy about their leaves and so are some monkeys in Africa. But neither they nor the sloths look like the koala, which has an Australian charm all of its own.
2: So here's your guys. Here's the koalas.
3: There are a lot of
2: eucalyptus trees in Australia. That's why they did so successfully. But they're just really hard to eat. They're full of
0: toxins. Is that why they're always asleep? They're kind of half-stoned? Well,
2: the whole thing about the stone thing was terpenoids are the chemical that gives the eucalyptus smell. Another thing that has terpenoids... That also smells a lot are things that also have cannabinoids. Uh-huh. Now, why yeah. we get stoned is because we have an endocannabinoid system. We're not, we're not pre evolved to be stoned, but it works. <laughs> cannabinoids work on the same receptors. Sure. And so there was a rumor that, well, maybe because of the terpenoids in eucalyptus, maybe there's, there's a bit of truth to that. Because a lot of animals have the endocannabinoid system yeah. because it functions for other reasons. This is why people say, oh, cannabis is good for everything. We have that endocannabinoid system. And so maybe, but I think the argument is mainly because the amount of energy they need to use to overcome the toxins those eucalypts have, which means their liver's got to work hard, their microbiome's got to work hard to get that nutrient, is they've got to be really energy efficient. They average move four hours out of 24 hours. When they move, they can move a long way. They can run really fast. They can. It's not like they can't do the movement. They're it's not just, sloths. They're not. They're not sloths at all. Koalas move. If you see them run across the ground, they run really fast. So you see those videos of sloths running across the road. And they go, oh. <laughs> I think people have to pick it up because it's just it's just, like <laughs> right, you know it's just, it's gonna be people are gonna get old by the time it gets to the other end.
0: <laughs> what 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 is the current state of the the koala? population do you think it's going to uh do you think they'll be all right do you well, pull it together
2: the problem is there's a few things that's going on with koala now koala's an interesting species especially nationally in that victoria and south australia are overpopulated and that's because they've been really restricted in habitat they hunted them almost to extinction there, and then they put them back into those areas and there's too many and so they're actually trying to Reduce the numbers there. But in New South Wales and Queensland... So when
0: you say reduce the numbers, you mean relocate them, right?
2: Relocate them. <laughs> well, well, there's no... Way. They have, people have suggested... Oh, 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 God. People have suggested that other method, Aqualical. but... call. Well, they have in certain areas. And because they say, well, they're in poor condition, they're dying, they're overeating, it's more humane in some way. But no politician ever support that, so they see they sterilise them and move them. Kangaroo Island have been sterilising and moving them all over. They were actually introduced to Kangaroo Island, and then they took a big hit with the fires, but yeah. there's still a lot of them. But in New South Wales and Queensland, we've got the other... We've got nice, genetically diverse, unlike those guys down there, but they, um, they are declining in a lot of areas. It's partly because of... Koalas have this unfortunate thing. They like the same land we do. Mm. Again, their specialised diet, eucalyptus trees, produce more nutrients and less toxins on good soils. What else likes good soils? Farmers. And then they're along the coast. So that ex farmland gets turned into housing development. So, so that's the problem. It's luck of land for them there. There's also, they've been doing really badly, Especially in the western part of their range, because of heat waves, they can stand a little bit of heat, but when you get over forty degrees, 45 degrees for a week, they're starting to suffer lack of water. So that's a problem. And also there's all the other things that those are clearing. They get hit by cars, they get killed by dogs. And in some areas, maybe on top of this, we're finding real problems with chlamydia. Which is a disease that causes firstly infertility, mm. which is really bad, and then it causes um, causes eventual death, and it's quite a cool cool death. So, oh my God. so every really comedian nasty. has a
0: joke about how they got chlamydia from a koala or a Yeah, get on board with that again.
2: <laughs> well, the, the thing is, a lot of organisms have chlamydia. The reason it's why it's been so devastating, as many diseases have, it's probably jumped species because the forms of chlamydia in koalas are genetically related to the forms in cattle and sheep. Mm. So we don't know if it's uh, continual because it's an STD, but it's not just an STD. This is where people got to be really careful because they said, well, how does it get it from the sheep? When <laughs> sheep, sheep, about 40% of the Merino stock have chlamydia, and it's mainly a gastrointestinal disease. Really? Uh, so maybe... And again, this has not been confirmed anywhere, but from the genetic strains, koalas probably walk through the sheep and then they basically pick it up from that. Mm. So, And then they can transmit it from mother to child, but also as an STD as well. And the problem is it's really hard to treat in koalas because, firstly, they eat those toxins in those leaves, so they're really good at breaking down chemicals. So most things you give them to treat it, the liver breaks down the actual treatment, also it can harm their microbiome. So it takes weeks of treatment, mm. and then you release them out there and then they will get it again. Oh, so we're working on a vaccine at the moment. We'll see how that goes because that seems to be the only way mm. that will work is like that; you will have a vaccine. Now, the vaccine may, again, there's not a lot of evidence, but it may actually not only just treat the disease, but it also may reverse some of the effects eventually. Like right. They may even become fertile again. That's the hope for the future in those ones.
0: Do do you think there's a way for koalas and humans to coexist within proximity?
2: Well, we can. We can. We just have to make our places koala-friendly. We've got areas like southwestern Sydney's got a lot of koalas. Problem is, is, we also want to put lots and lots of people down there. We want to expand roads. Mm. And so koalas go on roads and get hit by cars. So we've got to make a fence and underpass and we can, maybe we can learn more about movement and see how we can make the landscapes more koala friendly. We can keep old trees. Koala can't sit in a tree until it's got some age to it. Like a 10-year-old tree still Really, really quite small. They'll go and feed from it. So you've got to keep old trees. That's as we go through planning, keeping trees, keeping dogs restricted. They've cohabited with dingoes for a long time. It seems to be people's dogs that kill them rather than dingoes. So what, dingoes don't go for them? or is Well, it just, they would. They, yeah, would. they would if they yeah. could. They've coexisted. But nature's they figured exists. out the balance. <laughs> yeah, like people's dogs tend to be bigger than dingoes. Uh, coales can defend themselves. They're not... But when you've got a couple of dogs, mm. they can live on farms quite successfully, and we know that. But, again, you've got to make sure that there's access to food and water and and they don't get stomped on by the cows, which happens at times. God. But, yeah, we can do agriculture and koalas together. And clearly you have, hold on to hope or you wouldn't be able to do what you do. Oh, yeah, yes. We spend more money on koalas than any other species, and this is the irony. People go, oh, well, we must be able to save koalas if we're spending Oh, and said, so can we save anything else Yeah. if we can't save the koala? Mm. Like, yeah, of course, because it's so beloved, right? It is so beloved. There's a major problem. I don't want to get too political here, but we had a certain head of a political party in New South Wales, and he basically changed all of the legislation that made it a lot easier to clear land because he thought it wouldn't allow farmers to do anything. Truth be told, it wouldn't allow farmers to become developers, but he said it was farmers Mm. because it wasn't going to affect small-level farming because he was talking about farmers in sheds and things like that. What it was really about, he couldn't get his developer mates who bought these farms Mm. up the coast of Australia to convert their farms into mm. housing developments. So oh, that's what they go, oh, we love koalas, we love koalas. This is what New South Wales Environment Minister said. So here's some money for this, here's some money for this. But the elephant in the room is you've made it easier to clear the land where the koalas are. Yep. So people say, why aren't we saving the koalas? all well, you know, <laughs> yep. not all of it's money. Some of it is legislative change. And now we have this legislation that's not koala-friendly. It seems to be a lot more po chopping trees, down. I, just, I
0: fear this so much with politics, you know, that for all the good intentions, all you need is two or three of these, uh, maybe psychopath isn't the right word, but definitely, yeah. uh, you know, they're, they're definitely much more money focused and yes. it doesn't really matter what gets cleared out of the way as long as, you know, they're doing great. And I just don't know how, I don't think a person like that even has the gland in their head to appreciate you know, what would be lost if these guys just suddenly disappeared.
2: No, no. Apparently he calls them true rats, so he doesn't really care. (laughs) We've got to stop clearing their habitat. Uh, That's the easiest thing. That's the easiest thing about saving the koala, stop clearing the habitat. Then we can have koalas. That's as simple as that.
0: Yeah, yeah. and And, you know, and gravitate towards leaders who aren't so dismissive of nature. I mean, it seems like such a late 1800s industrial robber baron perspective. It's yeah. such a strange, I feel like they need to be
2: clockwork oranged and put in front of Attenborough for, <laughs> for a few but, hours. But they know, they know, the, they know the power of the class. So they'll keep on diverting. Mm. But they'll say, oh, look at how much money we're putting in the class. So, And it's funny, people don't actually know what they don't really know what a million dollars is. No. So when they say, oh, we've put, a, we've put a few million dollars in the class, and people go, oh, that will save them. Right. <laughs> They're making a lot more money coming in yeah, destroying yeah. the habitat. So,
3: so that's, that's, that's what we're faced with. The red kangaroo has developed the marsupial reproductive technique into a very efficient system indeed. 33 days after the fertilized egg started its development, the little young, scarcely more than an embryo, is expelled from the womb. The tiny baby, and only one is born at a time, valiantly squirms its way towards the pouch, a journey that may take it up to five minutes. Within a day or so of the young fastening on the teat, the mother produces another egg in the womb and will mate again. But that fertilized egg will wait there without developing until, in 235 days' time, the first baby is sufficiently well grown to leave the pouch. Only then will the development of the next egg proceed.
2: Marsupials basically have very short gestations, like 30 days for a lot of them, and then, but they're not developed. The most of developing happen inside the pouch. In Euthelians Uth- or Placentals, you tend to have them, they're, they're cooking a lot longer in the mother, basically. Yeah. <laughs> My doesn't have legs developed. Yeah. But a placental, well, they basically have everything developed. And some of them, like the antelope, and that, they've, they've got to say, okay, you're out. Start running. Like.
0: <laughs> when I, the first time I saw that as, as a little kid, it yeah. made me realize just the ease of your life, yeah. you know, compared to so many animals where it's like, Welcome to the world, now run.
2: Yeah. Go. <laughs> so those things come out very easily. They're not developed. And so they can just do most of their development, oh, well, a lot of their development, actually on the teeth. And it's interesting, mosquitoes actually change their milk structure it's really high in protein at the beginning mm. because they've got to develop the organs. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But then they've just got to get bigger, so it moves more to like more of a fat content, so they get bigger. Right. Ethereans or placentals, we do all our development in the womb, mm. but they do a lot of the development outside the womb, and so that's why the milk's really important. So it's an, it's an interesting system. I think it works really well. That's why people say the superior eutherian or placental system. I'm going... Really? Like, how easy would childbirth be if it was just like that? Like, childbirth is pretty difficult, I said. like,
0: Well, and this is saying that that a female kangaroo can basically raise
2: three young at once. Well, because they can have another one ready to go, because it's embryonic diapause, and that's really good if you live in, now in Australia, where things are really unpredictable. You're going to have rainfall, you're not going to have rainfall, and... It's actually better for the mother to survive than the juvenile survive for the lineage to increase. So what she will do, she's been pursued. She's got to really get away. She'll put a juvenile paw in and chuck out out the other one. And so they'll get eaten or whatever, and then she'll survive. (laughs) Because she can have another one, because often she'll have an embryo in diapause, and so she hasn't lost out... If she gets eaten, in <laughs> the story. Isn't that
0: fascinating? Because you see so many mammals will risk their lives and potentially die to protect their young. Is that because they can only carry one? And so this one is the be-all and end-all in terms of the progression?
2: Well, because in ours, it's, you know, it's a long, long gestation. It's easy to produce young if you're a marsupial. You know, a, a long gestation for a marsupial 30 days. Wow. Because then they come in the pouch. Yeah. But for them, with embryonic diapause, bang. Starts developing, comes out, and starts going under the teat, and starts all over again. So, no, they'll go pick up the young if, 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 it, the doesn't day, get eaten. if it doesn't. Get eaten. <laughs> it's still there. of booting it out of a moving car. Yeah, but they will chuck the joeys out. So it's um, it's a different system. Isn't it interesting
0: that judgment call that people put on that? You know that it's. The instinct is to say, oh, that's horrible,
2: throwing the baby out. But, you know, nature has no kind of... Um... Yeah, it's a good system. Again, you don't put moralistic interpretations on it. Yeah. It works well evolutionally yeah, because yeah. if there's no mother, there's no young going to be produced. Uh-huh. In other things, it takes so long. Yeah. You think of a large animal, ooh, like an elephant. Oh, about yeah. the effort That's why they put so much in protecting those young. They can't have that many young. Mm. It just takes so long. Us, we have a very long gestation. And the longest childhood. We have a very long childhood, and you can talk about a lot of things, including like our cognitive abilities and how much we've got to be trained and all that, about our social systems and even why we have things such as marriage, because in a lot of mammals, it's like male mammals, they're just thinking, my best bet is to get as much sperm into as many women as possible. Mm. See you later. I'll go mate with a whole lot of other females. Much better for me. But... A human takes so long yeah. to pass your genes onto the next generation. Well, it's much better if you've got multiple parents yeah. looking after, and then yeah, you know, a tribe and a village, and then a city, and then it, then it all went downhill again. But
0: so, yeah, and that, and that definitely has. That's yeah. I mean,
2: we're back to this kind of
0: very cloistered. You know, no, it's oh, yeah. just me and my child and these three oh, adults yeah. that I allow
2: into its orbit. Yeah, you look at traditional societies. You think, and like, how much do the grandparents mm. play? In the raising of a child, even now, people say if they've got grandparents, it's, it's, it's the best thing there is. Oh, 100%. Yeah, yeah. And so that's has been because we have such complex behaviours. Yeah. Clean language is probably the, the main thing. Yeah. Language and communication. And these other mammals, which a lot of it is, it's genetic inherited yeah. behaviour, so... Yeah, yeah, yeah. What is the biological
0: advantage of a huge gestation period and then quite an extended
2: infancy? Well, it depends. Like, like we're talking about the antelope. Yeah, they're ready to go. Yeah. like they can move and go, and so you're not—they're not being not such a burden. It's a different sort of pathway. Like I suppose they have advantages and disadvantages in a lot of ways. Again, a long gestation means I—you're putting a lot more development in there, mm. and maybe things like getting big brains takes a lot of cooking. Yeah, of course, like. You could never have a marsupial human, just because it's just not enough time in development. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so as we survive because we have all these complex behaviors and communications. Our senses aren't that good. When you think of most animals, they're pretty hopeless physically. Yeah. Like, <laughs> we're not going to outrun anything, are we? Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's literally just the brain, right? Yeah, yeah. That cerebral cortex. Yeah, which allows us to use tools, allows us to communicate, allows us to work as a group. Like, you can say, yeah. "Hey, over there, let's." also rocks of that leopard and I suppose that's probably one advantage that you can get these really complex behaviors evolving. Same, like
0: going back to antelope like a pregnant antelope like, I don't know what the gestation period is, but it's it much be-
2: longer like well, it's not thirty days like a my yeah. so it's quite long right? but so
0: pregnant mum is obviously very vulnerable, right carrying a, a like a developing fetus around that's eventually the size of a an antelope that can run
2: yeah, but they can still run and also. They, they're in herds and mm. things like that, and they sort of protect each other the the herd type behavior. It's not like they're, they're oh, let's all look out, out for the pregnant one, but, again, it's more that if we're all in a group, we've all had a better chance of survival. Yeah. They can still run, like they're pregnant, still very active. But they just can't ditch the baby. <laughs> they, they, can't, they can't ditch the baby. That's <laughs> a kangaroo just hopping along and just goes.
0: Back to that primitive word, do you think that the, the reason people think of that is because we're thinking, again, in that... Straight line type yes. of way, where it's like reptiles to monotremes to
2: placental mammals yeah. to us. Yes, I think so. I think it's it's it's, it's human biased. Yeah, of course, you know everything's biased towards the one who's speaking of it. Yeah,
3: it's a commonly held belief that marsupials are very primitive, backward mammals. Scarcely any improvement, if any, on those early egg layers, the echidna and the platypus. It's a view after all that was held by Charles Darwin. But the fact of the matter is that the accidental isolation of the marsupials in Australia, brought about by the drifting of the continents, has given them a long, long time in which to weave variations on the basic model. And some of those variations are very efficient creatures indeed.
0: That is that. So for a 40-year-old
2: documentary, does it hold up? I think it does. Yeah? I think it does. It simplifies things, but you've got to simplify yeah. things. Some of that footage is still incredible when you think of the mm. time it was taken. They are so good now. You see the blue planet. You see, wow, look what they can do now. But even then, like those images of the um, young being born, Yeah. That. That was incredible at that time yeah. to get that sort of footage. Yeah. And, what you, and what do you think of David
0: as, as just a presenter or an educator?
2: So he, he speaks with authority, which I think people like. Yeah. He's sort of like the opposite of the Steve Irwin, who's the knockabout bloke, and he yeah. is like grabbing things and going, oh, look at this. But again, it was a different sort of audience. He's saying, I'm, I'm an educated person. He obviously understands the information. It simplifies, but you sort of got to simplify it. Yeah. Because even that conversation you had about centers. He's not going to spend, like, 15 minutes going, well, they actually do have placentas, but we, like people go, oh, yeah, let turn that off. <laughs> like, uh, like you hear him now, and, of course, he's changed a lot in – well, because knowledge has changed a lot. And we think in 79, that's a long time of knowledge to change. not just the technology he's been using, mm. but and he's still going, he's still got – the voice.
0: Yeah. He's never lost that yeah. uh, wonder and that childlike reverence for what he's presenting, which I think, you know, is something that we could all learn from.
2: Yes. Yeah. He's a national he's, he's treasure. I think, he's a, I think
0: he's a world treasure. Yeah. He
2: is. You can't think of someone in that field that is as loved as as him. And I've never even heard someone, you know, anyone as cynical as you can say about these things go, oh, I don't like David Nam- I've never heard... No, I've never that. heard that.
0: And in fact, you know, I think that someone, if they did, would be embarrassed to admit it. I know, I know. it's, it's I know. a defection in your brain, I think. <laughs> yeah.
2: People love him. Like, he's the koala of the presenters. Like, everyone
0: loves him. <laughs> Thank you once again to Associate Professor Matthew Crowther for an awesome conversation. And as always, big thanks to my co-editor, co-producer and sound wizard, Sean Allen, for all the incredible work that he does behind the scenes. If you are enjoying this podcast, it would be a huge help to us if you could take 30 seconds to go to your podcast app of choice and leave a five-star rating and review. Next week. Well, next week sees the return of Associate Professor Matthew Crowther. We had such an awesome time together on our first chat that we returned for round two for a much more extensive conversation on all things mammals as we sat down together to watch episodes 10 and 11 of Sir David Attenborough's Life on Earth. Thank God.